Uh, you guys know what a paradox is? So a paradox or a conundrum or a puzzle, it's like two things that don't quite make sense, right? They're true, but they don't make sense. I'll give you one that maybe you haven't heard of. It's called risk homeostasis. Who's heard of that? Ah, a couple people. So here's what risk homeostasis is. It's as we make things safer and safer, humans respond more dangerously, right? You put a helmet on somebody, you put some pads on somebody, what do they do? Run into a brick wall. Why not? I got a helmet on, I got pads on, right? And it's been proven over and over. So when cars first came out with anti-lock brakes, did it make people drive safer? Oh, no. It made people drive much faster. Why? I've got anti-lock brakes, right? doesn't matter if it's ice. I've got anti-lock brakes. Airbags did the same thing. So the safer a person feels that they are because of whatever, the more dangerously they're going to live. And if you don't believe me about traffic, go drive the 405 in L.A. Dangerous, right? Everyone's in cars with analog brakes, with airbags, and they think, I can, I can get away with anything. Because what happens when we think something is made safe, it's no longer my responsibility to live safely. It's ODOT's job to make sure I drive safely, right? You need to have the signals. You need to have the signs. You need to keep the road cleared. You need to make sure there's no dangerous potholes in it. So we just outsource all of that to ODOT, and we don't drive as safe. That's risk homeostasis, and it's been proven. So in London, they did all these studies on it, and there's this great quote by this traffic architect. He says this, what these signs, all this, you know, whatever, what these signs are doing is treating the driver as if they were an idiot. If you do so, drivers exhibit no intelligence. I love that. I've driven behind that guy. Because it's not my responsibility anymore. It's the signs, it's the signals, it's ODOT's job to keep me safe, right? So in Sweden, knowing all this, they had this intersection. It was 30,000 cars hit this intersection every single day. And it was a known, like, people get into accidents all the time in this intersection. So guess what they did? They pulled all the signs, they pulled all the signals, and they made it open. So when you come to that intersection, you're not waiting for a red light. You're making eye contact, and you're saying, like, that guy's driving an old junky Ford pickup. Let him go first. Go ahead. Right? You're making those decisions on the fly. No signs at all. Guess what they found? An 80% reduction in accidents at that intersection. How cool is that? I think Grant's past should try that everywhere. Just why not, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. We'd get on the map then. People would know about Grant's past. It's the, it's the idea that, hey, now it's up to you to drive responsibly through this intersection. It's not up to us to get you through it. It's your responsibility. And it's everywhere, right? So when they come out with something like a low-calorie cookie, what does that make your mind think? I can eat two boxes of these cookies now, right? 
It's, the, it, it's, it's a thing, it's a paradox in humans. That the safer that we think we can make something, the more dangerously we'll act. That's a conundrum. That's a paradox, okay? James, the book we're studying right now, is going to give us a paradox. And it's a big paradox. And so to give you the context of where we've been in James, it's James shows up, he says, hello? Heard you're having tough times. Good. It's good for you, right? And then right after that, he talks about, I know in tough times, you're going to need wisdom. So he talks about how to get wisdom, right? And then he's going to go right back to the tough times, and he's going to give us this paradox. Because here's what James knows. When people go through difficulty, and difficulty was coming for the church that James was writing to. Emperor Claudius had already started persecuting the church. Nero was coming on the scene. It was not going to be pretty for Christians. The Roman Empire had decided, we don't like these people. So that's coming for them. So here's what James knows. When you start going through difficulty, whether it's persecution or financial or relational or health, you start to ask the question, where did this come from? Why am I going through this? What's the source of my trial, of my temptation, of my difficulty? All right? So James knows that's going to come. Listen to what he does. Verse 12, James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You got tough times? Kind of joy? Stay put. There's a reward. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits. Of his creatures. Brilliant. Anticipating the questions, anticipating what we're going to think, and then answering them. And what the paradox that James puts out is called theodicy. And that's a simple way, or a theological way, I should say, of saying, if God is so good and so perfect... Why is there so much evil and bad and trials and difficulty? It's called theodicy. How do you put those two things together? God's good, but a lot of bad stuff happens. 
How can a good God who is sovereign and in control, how can he be allowing all these difficult trials and this stuff to happen? What's the deal? It's the Odyssey. Ever felt that way? God, why is this happening? Why is this trial hitting me? What's going on here? Ever felt that way? So what James does is he divides it out into two ideas. The first one is, it's hamar theology, which is a fancy way of saying sin. It's the Greek word for sin. So hamar theology is, there's a sin component. But then right after that, he goes, but there's also a theology component, a God component. Theology is simply the study of God. So those are our two points. First, hemartiology. Let me read for you again verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted, and there's a line of um, similarity between trials and tempted, the Greek word there. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's what I call this. This is the birds and bees of sin babies. Because James uses the metaphor when it comes to sin of conceiving and having a child, right? That's the metaphor he uses. So this is the birds and bees of sin babies. Notice number one. It says you have to be lured and enticed. The word enticed in the Greek means to bait, like baiting a hook. Do you know what really good fishermen do? Besides catching fish, really good fishermen bait the hook so you can't see it, right? They put the bait on that hook so you don't see it. They hide the hook. And then when they cast that, whatever it is, that bait out in front of the fish, they make the lure or they make the bait look like it's alive. Not that it's death, which it is. Here's the thing about Satan. He is the ultimate mortician. He's able to dress up death and make it look like it's alive. He makes death look like life. He does it all the time. Every day, Satan goes about his business, baiting hooks that are death, and trying to get you and me enticed and believing, no, this is life. He's the ultimate mortician. So kids, teens, look at all those kids over there partying, They're having so much fun, drinking, smoking pot, doing drugs. Look how much fun that is. Bait, enticed. But it actually leads to death. Dewey's, homelessness, jail, addiction, sexual stuff, tears, pain. I can go on and on and on. I've sat with them in rooms. It's death. Cute new co-worker at work. Ooh. Yeah, you're married, but, you know, it's harmless. 
Oh. Divorce, alimony, pain, tears. You're living in a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment next to screaming neighbors and barking pit bulls. Death. That's what the enemy does. He dresses it up and makes it look like enticing life. And here's, if you're a fisherman, you know this. When you fish, you got to get the fish to notice the bait first, and then they need to turn and follow it. That's what the word lured means, to get you to get your attention on it and then start making some steps towards it. So you might have some lines in the sand where you say, you know what, I'm never going to do that. And what the lure does is you start compromising some of those lines in your life. Oh, it's no big deal. I'm not going to actually bite the bait. I just want to follow it for a little while. I'm not going to get hooked. I just want to check it out. I'm just flirting with him. That's all I'm doing. It's just a harmless text I'm sending her. That's all it is. Right? Now you're getting lured, moved. I'm just going to click on this picture because I want to read the story. That's what I want to do. Okay, you're getting lured then. I'm going to head to the bar because they got really good food there. Yeah, I might blow off a little bit of steam, but it's no big deal. I can handle it. I want to go back to my old crew. I'm going to see how they're doing. I haven't been around them in a while. I'll just go check it out. I won't stay long. Lines in the sand that have protected you, he gets you by the bait to start following and taking steps in the wrong direction. And then pretty soon, boom, sin baby. But it takes two things. It's not just the enemy luring and enticing us. There's another aspect to it. It always takes two to conceive. The other side is this. Verse 14 says, when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. That's number two. I think Satan is the ultimate psychologist. That he uses all kinds of bait on us. To see which one we follow, which one we notice, which one grabs our attention, and then he's got us. Right? Satan's never going to attempt me. He's never going to tempt me with black tar heroin. Just not my deal. I'm not going to be like, oh, man, if only I could. I've heard it was really cool. It does not get me. He's not going to tempt me with gambling. I'm way too cheap of a person. I'm like, no way. Right? But you know what he will get me with? Making people happy. He will get me with wanting people to think I'm holier than I actually am. Wanting influence. Oh, he knows the right bait to get my desire. He's super, super good. It takes both of those. And when they both come together, a sin baby is conceived and born, and it brings forth death. And notice what else it produces. If you back up to verse 13, it all began with this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. You know what else sin produces? Blame. Someone's at fault. Ask yourself this. 
Last time you get caught in your junk. What was your natural reaction? Find a scapegoat, right? Some reason, some person, maybe you shake your fist at God. God did this to me. Now, where would James get this idea? Go back to Genesis 3, the very first sin. What happened there? First, enticed, baited, right? The fruit looked good, noticed, followed, desire to be like God, taking that fruit, eating it, and what was produced? Sin and death and disease and cancer and wars and murder and Facebook and social media and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and ah, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm actually not kidding. I'm honest. It did produce that. And what does Adam do in that point? When he's busted in that, he's taken, he's eaten, what does he do? Does he confess his sin and say, I'm such a blow-it case, I'm so stupid, how could I have been taken in this? Does he say that? Mm -mm. What does he say? It's the woman you gave me. He blames God. Shakes his fist at God. God, it's the woman you gave me. She's defective. You made her and you need to fix her. I'll be over here gardening while you do that exactly this. God did this to me. People still do that. They shake their fist at God. You did this to me. How brilliant is James? It's just condensed. James is just like condensed Bible. So what's the birth control? If this thing produces this sin baby and this sin baby, when it's grown up, brings death, what's birth control? It's abstinence, no doubt. And here's how. You got to look for the hook. You got to start looking for the hook. The Bible's super honest about sin. Hebrews 11.25 says sin is pleasurable for a season. Right? What people are doing, sinning and having whatever it might be, you can look over there. They're not miserable. They're having a great time. It's pleasurable for a season. But then the Bible also says... Romans 6, 23, the wages, the end result of sin, though, is death. Sin has a springtime of pleasure, but winter always follows. Death always comes. And as a believer, you and I have to be really good about looking for the hook. Because Satan is super good at baiting and hiding the hook. Matt. I met this girl this weekend. Where'd you meet her? I met her at this rave party. Bro, that's a hook. But she's hot. So is hell. (laughs) Matt, I met this guy. I know he's bad, but he's so interesting. Hmm. It's a hook. You're going to find you're very interested in your credit card bill, too and your missing car, and your single-digit credit report, because he's bad. There's a hook. As believers, we got to get really good at looking for the hook, or you'll get a sin baby. 
And here's what you have to know about babies. They take over your life. They take over your life. All of your energy, all of your money, all of your time, all of your zest, everything is given to that baby. Trust me, I've had five babies. Everything's given to them. They rule you. They control you. Right? Be careful. I've stopped counting the number of times I've sat in an office right over there and talked to some guy who has a refugee camp full of sin babies and now wants to repent and get out of it. And I always tell them the same thing. You need to start a sin journal where you write down what you have done and you write down how you're feeling right now. The tears, the anguish, the death, the junk, you write it all down because here's the thing. We'll get this hook out of you and we'll help you and we'll walk with you for a month or two and then you'll disappear. And then all of a sudden, you'll forget the hook and you'll only remember the bait. And you'll be doing the same thing in a year or two years in this office with me. Full of anguish, the refugee camp full of sin babies, hooked. Like I have threatened to install a video camera in my office or in one of the offices. And the moment they start talking, say, like, hold on a second, let me just start recording this. And just, well, 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 sin baby, sin baby, sin baby. Okay, okay, okay. And then when they're done and they leave, I just wait till they start being enticed again and then just texting them. I'm posting your confession on YouTube for all your friends to watch. Right? Remember the hook. Remember the pain. And what I've noticed as I age, as I talk to people that are older, the older you get, the shorter the season of pleasure and the stronger the sin babies are. It just starts to switch on you. And it just starts to, oh, crush you. Be so careful. Look for the hook. If you can't see the hook, ask another believer, hey, is there a hook in that? They'll tell you. And then listen to them and get in community and be around people that will warn you, bro, sis, you're following death right now. That thing will not end well. You listen. You look for the hook. So that is the birds and bees of sin babies. His hamar theology. It's brilliant. But then immediately on that, he, he juxtaposes it with theology. Notice what he says about God. Number one, God does not tempt you with sin. Whatever that is, she texted me back. Not God. Telling you, not God. God doesn't tempt you with sin. And so, just in case you didn't get that, he gets real, real, real specific. God, not the source of sin, not the source of junk, God is the source of all that's good, all that's perfect, all that's right. That there's not even a shade of gray in God. There is no variation in him. He is good and perfect. 
Everything that has light, everything that has life, everything that has love, everything that has joy, everything that is good is directly from your heavenly Father. Just to make sure there's no mistake about it. No variation, no change, no shadow, no gray, nothing. He is good. He is light, life, and love. Not fairy love. Twinkle pixie dust on everybody so they can fly away and be happy. A holy, ferocious, perfecting love that wants the best for you and me. That's his theology. So he puts these two in contrast to each other. And so it still leaves the question then like, well, where's the source of hardship and difficulty and trial and evil and sin? Where's it from then? It's a discussion we had as elders this summer. And so what I did is I just said, okay, let's look at case studies and try to figure out where's the source of these things. I'm going to do the same thing for us today. Like, where does this trial, bad difficulty come from? Where's it from? All right? And I'm only doing three because it's all the time I have, but you can go through all of them. So let's look at these. Let's look at cancer. That's a trial. That's a difficulty. That's called physical evil. And there's all kinds of examples you could use. I'm just using cancer. Cancer is physical evil. Where does cancer come from? Is it from God? Does God strike people with cancer? So the way that you use the Bible to try to answer questions like that, you go to Genesis 1 and 2, when God created a good place called Eden, and he gave it to his humans and says, enjoy there. And guess what was not in the Garden of Eden? Death. Cancer. No. Cancer is not from God. Cancer is from the brokenness of our world. That what happened in Genesis 3 is the fabric of the universe fractured, and with that, our DNA as well. Now we have cancer. So it can come from the brokenness of our world, but also cancer can come from my own stupid decisions, right? If I choose to smoke cigarettes, in this day and age, I don't think anyone has not been given the message, smoking causes cancer. Well, I am opening myself up to the potential of cancer by my decisions. So physical evil is not from God. Broken world, yes. Bad decisions, possibly. And sometimes you got to figure out what it is. But not from God. He's not the source of that. Okay, let's look at another one. That this church right here would go through. Persecution. Is persecution from God. And persecution is a unique kind of trial. It's a trial that you go through difficulty because you are naming and standing steadfast for Jesus Christ. Does God persecute believers? No. God's not persecuting people for naming the name of the Son. That persecution, Peter would say, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Peter would also say that we get hit by trials and they're the fiery darts of the enemy. Paul puts it like this, Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. 
The source of persecution, I just call it a clash of kingdoms. It's you are standing now steadfast for the kingdom of heaven, and there is a dark kingdom that comes against that. It's satanic. Peter makes that clear. Paul makes that clear. So no, not from God. Third one, maybe the most difficult one, rape. Moral evil. Is moral evil from God? Is he the source of moral evil? Is it God's will that somebody gets raped? I would categorically say no. It is not God's will that anyone gets raped. Moral evil, here's the cause of moral evil. Here is the source of moral evil. And it's a long discussion. I'm just going to say it this way. It is the significant actions of morally responsible individual humans who have taken their freedom and used it in a selfish, broken, destructive way. And God has given to every single human that freedom. It's from individuals. It's not God's will. Read the Old Testament law. All the laws against what we would call moral evil, they're all in there. Not God's will, right? So you can keep doing this for just about everything. You keep going down, going down, going down. Matt, what's the good news in all this? This is kind of depressing. Here's the good news. In the midst of evil, in the midst of brokenness, God works the night shift. Let me try to explain that with this quote. And this is a very complex quote, but it's a good quote. You can put it up. This is from David Bentley Hart, a philosopher, and he puts it like this. It's the best quote in condensed form that tries to say what I'm saying. God has willed his good, James 1, 17. God has willed, that's his will, his good in creatures from eternity and will bring it to pass. Despite their rebellion, by so ordering all things toward his goodness, that even evil, which he does not cause, becomes an occasion of the operations of grace. For me, that's one of my money quotes. Here's what it means. As you read the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, here's what you see. It's not moral stories of heroes. It's evil humans doing bad things over and over and over again. Abraham taking his wife's slave as his own sexual gratification. That's not good. And a sin baby comes from that. Bad things come out of that. David seeing a woman that he wants, snatching her, taking her, impregnating her, and then killing her husband. Right? These are the so-called heroes of the Bible. No, the Bible's full of humans doing really bad things. That's what it's full of. But parallel to that, what you see is God limiting, frustrating, and even turning evil into His good. Genesis 50 verse 20. That what was meant for evil 
I've been able to turn to good to the saving of many lives. That's what you see in the Bible if you read it very carefully. It's brilliant. It's awesome. That's the good. God works the night shift. And as you read the story of Jesus, it's the culmination of this. So there's this idea in theology that God needed evil to demonstrate how graceful and how merciful he is. I personally cannot stand that because I don't think God needs anything. I think God is, and there's a, theologi- there's a term for it, but he is separate. He needs nothing. He doesn't, it's not like, well, I need evil to demonstrate. No. And what you see in the life of Jesus, and we're studying his life right now in the book of Luke, Jesus treats evil as an intruder into the real kingdom, and he fights against it, forgives sins, cleanses diseases, casts out Satan. It's not something to be partners with. It's an invader that must be removed. And then Jesus goes to the cross and deals evil. It's death blow. Deals sin and death. It's death blow. And here's what we have to know today. Evil has a terminal disease. It's called redemption. The Bible tells us one day, All that is evil, all that is broken, all that is bad will be crushed into a ball and thrown into this place called the lake of fire, banished from the good kingdom that God wants. Oh, Matt, what is he waiting for? Why doesn't he do that right now? If God was in this moment to get rid of everything that's evil, everything that's sinful, every stupid decision, what would happen to all of us? We'd go too. What would happen to our families that we love and want to see them come into his grace and into his redemption? They'd go. So the Bible says God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God waits and keeps making an invitation, come into my goodness, be part of my kingdom, enjoy the shalom that I'll give to you. This is what James is saying. No, keep these things separate. They're two different kingdoms, if you would. They're different. Will there be questions? Fully. Theodicy has been a question for 2,000 years. Will we get some answers to it? Yep. Will we get all the answers to it? I believe one day you will. But it might not be until you stand in his presence and you stop seeing through a glass darkly. You might have to wait until that day. Why'd you take a whole Sunday to talk about this? Here's why. Whenever I talk about sin, I know this. There are people that have come in and they have a refugee camp of sin babies and they hear this message and they're condemned. And they feel like God is disgusted with them. I've blown it, I've made my mistakes, God hates me. Listen to me carefully. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith into him, here's what you are, it's verse 18. Of his own will, you wanna know God's will? Of his own will, he brought you forth with the word of truth that you should be the first fruits of his creation. 
You know what first fruits means? Varsity. That God, by his will, his will is, I want you, Matt Heverly, with all of your sin babies and all of your junk, I want you to be on my varsity team. That's what he says about every single one that's put their faith in him. Your varsity, you're my first fruit. I love you. I chose you before the foundation of the world. I knew all the sin babies you would have. I knew all the junk you would have. And it did not change my mind about you. I still chose you. First round. First pick. Varsity. That's what you are. So Ephesians 2, 7 through 10 says this. That it's this process of grace. That God makes us into a trophy. That we become his workmanship, a trophy that through all eternity, God will point at you and me and say, look at what my grace did in Matt Heverly. Not what his works or his hard stuff or his discipline did. Look what my grace did in Matt Heverly. We become trophies of his grace. There is no condemnation to you that are in Christ Jesus. That is a lie of the enemy trying to separate you out from your heavenly Father, the good, perfect heavenly Father, right? So here's what James is doing. He's really saying sin is bad and God is good, right? That's a simple, that's what he's saying. If you want to simplify this down, that's what he's saying. Sin's bad, death, God's good. Now, why would he do that? Here's why. James knows something. James knows what actually transforms a person, what changes the inner part of a person. What changes you? What makes you into a different type of person? Do rules? Does the law change a person? Well, all you have to do is look at prison. Does prison change people? Oh, the statistics are really bad. Do they have good laws? Man, they got as square of laws as you got. They'll keep it as tight and as good as possible, right? You can't get more law than you get in prison. But it doesn't change anybody. Because laws don't change people. Does guilt change people? No. Does trying harder change you? Nope. All those things, you know what they do? They make whitewashed tombs. The outside might look good, but inside is bad and gross. You know what changes people? Beauty. Beauty changes people. What James is saying right here is so simple. He's saying, this is ugly, and it's sin, and it's gross, and it's bad. But look how beautiful God is. He's good, and he's perfect. The difference between religion and this following, this invitation to follow Jesus is this. Religion finds God useful. He's my self-help God. He's give me my best life now God. He's I want to elevate my self-esteem God, right? God becomes useful to you. The invitation to follow Jesus is because he's beautiful. And when God, Jesus, becomes beautiful to you, you have the opportunity to be changed. It's Psalm 27, verse 4, where the psalmist writes this, One thing have I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh, to inquire in his temple. The psalmist was transformed how? Beauty. I'll give myself to this. Hey, guys, those that are married, when you decided to make that one special lady the object of all your teasing and annoyance, what did you say to her on that day? Did you get down on your knee and say, you know what, honey, I find you useful. You're like my DeWalt chop saw, so I'd like to spend the rest of my life with you. I hope not. No, you said you're beautiful. You've captured my heart. And, and what happens then is all of a sudden out of that, you pick up your towel. You put away childish things. You commit your life to that. Why? Because it changed you. It transformed you. Only beauty has the power to transform. And that's why James sets this up the way he does. Sin is ugly and bad, but God, he's good and perfect and beautiful. And by his will, he chose you to be his varsity player. Oh, he's beautiful. He's beautiful. So we get to go to the table. And maybe some of us need to repent. Because we're treating Jesus as if he's useful. That, hey, if I do these things right, I can get a hold of Jesus' trust fund. And that will never change you. In fact, that will make you shake your fist at God and say, look at all that I did for you. How can this happen to me? That's what will happen to you. You'll get angry at him. Maybe you need to repent and say, how many find you beautiful, not useful? Capture my heart. May I say like the psalmist, one thing I seek after. One thing I desire because I've been captured by your beauty. And so Jesus, this day, forgive me. I can so easily look at you as a means to an end instead of the goal, instead of the end. Forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. May we not use you for something, but may our hearts be captured by your great love for us, by your sacrifice for us. That you who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Oh, how great is your love for us. May we eat and may we drink of that this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.